This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Hi, I'm Lama Surya Das. Welcome to the latest installment of the Awakening Now podcast, my podcast on the Be Here Now Network, originated by Ram Das and friends. Welcome again. It's nice to be with you, as always. Today, I'm talking with my old friend and Dharma colleague, Susan Kaiser Greenland. Hey, Susan, of L.A., author of The Mindful Child. Her new book is Mindfulness Games, introducer of mindfulness into the L.A. school system, and a wonderful friend and Dharma practitioner at Mother and other things. So how are you, Susan? I'm great, thanks, Surya. How are you? Good, and thanks for coming on to Awakening Now. It's always a good time to awaken, I guess. Especially since it's pretty early in the morning here. Yes, it was nice of you to get up to do this. Of course, I'm in the Boston area and you're in L.A., but through the magic of webitation, we can co-meditate together. Yes. Through these, yeah. this webitation. And many yeah. can join us, all of our friends and listeners. So, um, of course, as you know, I'm thinking a lot these days turning my attention to the younger people, not just the baby boomers and the 70s people and the people who went to the East Asia to meet the gurus in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I brought some of the gurus here and helped start their monasteries, ashrams, programs, and retreat centers and all in the 70s, 80s, 90s. But you have had, you've been a pioneer in bringing this and integrating it into the mainstream, which you know I bow to and I've been learning from myself. So uh, in the school systems and all, even though there may have been and probably still is some initial resistance to bring anything that smacks of religion, even yoga, which could be so secular and just physical. 
or mindfulness games or concentration and awareness exercises into the schools. So it's a wonderful thing you've done about bringing mindfulness into the mainstream, and now it's kind of sweeping the country. Uh, many of our friends you know, are pioneers and helpers in this, and you're one of them. So really, I bow to you. And I myself straddle the East and the West, having lived in the Himalayas and India for about 20 years and being a Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And you're almost entirely meditation-trained, spiritually savvy in the West through teachers East and West, so I'm looking forward to talking a lot about this today and how we can make a better future and a better present possible and bring more peace and harmony and kindness and loving kindness and clarity and wisdom into our world. And certainly education is, as everybody has said for you know decades and probably longer, the magic bullet, if you want to use such a martial term. Yeah, yeah. So I'm well, thinking I'm about higher, edu- higher education, not just in academia and college, but what is a truly elevated education? Wisdom for life, for happiness, wellness, and fulfillment and success and harmony in life education, yeah. what I call true higher education. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I hear you, and I think um, the, the opportunity to bring uh, secular appropriately adapted uh, Eastern practices to kids and to families wherever they are, whether it's schools, whether it's Girl Scout troops, whether it's Sunday schools in in various religions, whether it's at the dinner table. I think it really is a um, the, an important next step and a wonderful opportunity for co-teaching and co-learning. I know you've always been a big... Uh, uh, understander of how we learn that even teachers learn from their students and there is a co-teaching co-learning in a formal meditation practice and uh, teacher-student relationship well it's also true in the parent-child relationship and it's just a great opportunity for co-teaching and co-learning for everybody not just the kids yes well we certainly have a lot to learn from each other and it's such a joy um, and and kids are so great you know even in the Bible, when a child, an infant, says something wise or, or penetrating, I think it was Jesus, but it might have been somebody else, said, from the mouth of babes, meaning, you know, even, even children know. I'd say especially children know. Exactly. We drum that wisdom right out of them real fast. It's frightening how quickly we drum that wisdom out of them. Well, let's stop doing that. Yes. Let's try to learn how to stop doing that together. Yes. So important for the future and for now, for a better world. And the children are so important. We don't have to wax on about that. You're also a mother and have some children. So, um, and you told me your son, one of your sons just graduated from college and has moved home. So, yes. mazel tough and believe Thank for you. Thank you. I have two grown children. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is 25. One of them is 22. Uh, both of them were very fortunate. Both of them have come back to the L.A. area for at least a little bit. Um, so it's 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 wonderful, and man, that's a trip. It's a whole new transition towards parenting of adult children because parenting never ends, you know. But uh, hopefully, relationships change. We're lucky. We had the same thing with our daughter, and it's very common now. Like, I don't know about you, but when I graduated from college, it was kind of that was it. I then moved out, and I never. Mm-hmm. 
at right. home anything more than a vacation. But now kids are very regularly coming back and spending some time with their parents. And I think it's a, you know, and there's a lot of boohooing about that and the culture. Mm-hmm. But I think it's actually a wonderful opportunity to have a hands-on period of time to shift your relationship with your child so that you can shift into a more adult, more hands-off. Hopefully we've done that already with college, but really shift into an adult parenting relationship with kids. It sure changed for the better our relationship with our daughter. Not that it wasn't always good, but it helped with that transition. And I think it's working well with our son, too, who we're delighted to have home now. In fact, he helped us. If you see in the background, you see some guitars. Mm-hmm. And you see a bright red um, yeah. speaker. This used to be uh, our office, my husband's in my office for writing. It is now his recording studio. <laughs> Which came in very handy this morning when we had our little recording blip. I went and got him out of bed for our listeners and had him come down and help us out. So it's wonderful to have him home for all sorts of reasons. Well, thank you. And thanks to him for waking up. And waking up is an important subject today. So, And we're all trying to do that. So I'm very interested in what you're saying, though, about the, the positive side and the opportunity of the kids uh, coming home until they get their footing in the vocational and ex- socioeconomic world. Of course, there is a lot of moaning about, you know, failure to launch and difficulties and, yeah. that, you know, how and when to urge or even, you know, sometimes push them bird, little birds out of the nest. But you're, you're mindful of all the sides of that, and, and that's wonderful. Um, and also, if he's a musician, then it sort of fits in with your husband's novelist and your creative and expressive yeah. tendencies. So th- that must be nice. Uh, I'm it's terrific. It's funny. My daughter, who has a straight job, said she is the only one of her cohort whose parents say, hey, are you sure you want to keep that straight job right at the beginning? <laughs> you sure you don't want to just yeah, that, take a couple yeah. of years and try to do something you know, yeah. more creative and find your passion? She said right. all of her friends that, who are doing that are saying, can't you get a straight job? <laughs> so... Yeah, we, you know, we're we're game. We're game for it. Remember, I was a lawyer for about 20 years, so I had a very straight job for a while. Yes, I, I know that, and you were in Washington. Um, I never went back to my parents' house. I mean, I graduated from college when I was 20 and went to India and sort of never came back. I mean, yeah. if you ask my parents, of course, they're gone now, but they're still weighing in almost. I could feel them I'm channeling. You know, their comment would be, you're hardly here now. You're still like have two feet in the old world and the Himalayas and with your Lama friends and in ashrams yeah. and monasteries. But do you I feel, miss it? Do you miss it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm so much in it here with my Sangha and, and Satsang community and with the visiting Lamas and um, Swamis and Lamas who live here and uh, spiritual teachers who live here of all kinds. And also, of course, interfaith with the rabbis and priests and ministers and even some imams and there's so many yoga teachers so um, I, I go back every year or two for various reasons and now organizing with some of my western buddhist network teacher friends the next conference international conference with the dalai lama for buddhist youthful buddhist leaders of asia in india for next year so um, i see the dalai lama and my own teachers if they're still alive or, or their reincarnations, <laughs> the young ones that are coming through a lot. Yeah. But uh, I miss the simplicity and the brotherhood, sisterhood, the, the, a fellowship, the closeness of living in that kind of retreat center, 
or ashram or what we would call in America intentional community, all aligned, all going a certain way, whether we're following a teacher or a, a path and doing the same yoga and meditation and prayers and chanting and liturgy and philosophy studies and questions and debate even and you know, trying to work things out, but as a full-time thing pretty much every day. So I miss that. But I have a good community here and also fellowship of teachers and friends, uh, including you. You know how much I like to stay in touch with you and my other teacher friends, or I always ask you about other people who were there in L.A., like Ken McLeod, Trudy Goodman, or other people that you run into. So Yeah, Ken's a, not in L.A. anymore. He's, um, I don't even know. I, I, I keep in touch with him uh, virtually, but I'm not. Ex- I think he's in Northern California now. Hmm. Well, he's a interesting. I, I just you know got a recent uh, translation of one of his new Zogchen books. I think it's called The Thin Silver the trackless River. Path, maybe? Oh, yeah, the oh, trackless path, uh, and there was another one, the Silver Stream. The silver, yeah, his wonderful Zogchen books. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's doing a real service with those translations. Yes. I think he's got a. He's not teaching students anymore, uh, and I think he's found a very good spot for himself to be of service. I think his clarity in translation is really excellent, and well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yes, he's a good lama and a wonderful translator and yes. friend. Um, as I always say, Zogchen can't be taught, but it can be caught. So when you catch on, you know. It's more like a happy infection rather than an object of study like religious studies. But we do need the uh, translations and modern versions and adapted versions, which, as you know, I work on with my books like Awakening the Buddha Within and others. Yeah. You know, yeah. Reflections my, on a Silver River. Yeah. That's it came it. back. Yeah, yeah so, well, you're, you've got that new book, uh, Make Me One with Everything, right? Yes. I, I'm. I'm another very, great book and another great way of translating the the classical teacher teachings into something that is, uh, you know, digestible almost by yes. um, by people who by haven't anyone. experience with them. Yes, um, I tried to do something less traditional and introduce the notion of co-meditations and intermeditations for seeing through the illusion of separateness as you were saying, at home or at work or in nature or with your pets, like petitation, or with your kids, perhaps while they're sleeping, momitation, and other things like that that I'm very, um, I don't know, proud of, let's say, or interested in developing. Uh, Of course, nature, meditation, I love water, so anytime I see water, I naturally, bodies of water or streams, I naturally co-meditate with the water. Maybe, you know, everybody has different element of nature they love, so it's easy to merge and blend and experience oneness or peace or serenity in nature for many of us. So it's a natural meditation and helps undo the habit of overdoing. So I'm very interested in that these days, and especially for the younger people who are moving at a different speed in this over-information era and the Twitter era, the Facebook era, the, now the Instagram and whatever's next. It's all in this instant. So, Snapchat, na- I think. Is Snapchat. That's a big one, yeah. I've heard. Yeah, so nowness, you know, the, the holy now is an evergreen subject, of course, but um, we shouldn't be overly simplistic about it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very much, as I was saying, turning my attention to the youngers and trying to produce webitations on the web and do other things and also learn from them, as you were saying before. Like they're very good allies 
like Kelly here is helping me do this podcast today. Allies in learning the new technology and also their questions are not necessarily the questions we were asking in the 60s yeah. and 70s of the grand old masters yeah. and, and so on. It makes sense, though, because a lot of the questions that we were asking, whether you were asking them of the great old masters, or, or although I didn't go, I was in, in India for the first time a few years back, um, a lot of those questions, the answers to them, uh, are now woven through the popular culture mm -hmm. and just the general awareness. So many principles of mindfulness and meditation, so many universal truths that show up not just in Buddhist teaching, but in all sorts of uh, spiritual traditions and religious traditions, are now woven through uh, what what they think of as just everyday um, understandings. And there's a real upside to that, and there's also, in my opinion, I'd be curious to know about what you think, there's a real downside because I found that a lot of these general principles or universal principles that have now become, you know, common knowledge or part, mm -hmm. of, part of our language um, have taken on very new and different and sometimes um, uh, very thin form almost new agey or something or other kind of meaning yes or overly simplistic yeah. um, or sort of um very uh, monochromatic and like yoga yeah. just for exercise and health and looks and leaving out the other you know seven limbs of the eight limbs of yoga including meditation enlightenment and ethics and energy and service and devotion and and and, and wonderful things like that and there's no, also the devotion, Surya, because that's a that's a big topic of interest for me. Because devotion is tricky, um, in especially I think in a I can't speak for an Eastern culture, so I don't know if it's tricky over there. But especially in a Western context, because devotion and the development and the maintenance of healthy interpersonal boundaries can very easily get. Um, get uh can uh what's that word they can go again be on a collision course mm -hmm. for the word with each other um i and also just from the west devotion it's like you know unless if you really are a, a religious you know religious person who's been trained and totally bought into it the idea of devotion sounds a little bit icky um yet i just recently um uh, in the past couple of years uh, through some um, meditation program trainings that I've been doing through Tergar, uh, which is Minga Rinpoche's um, mm -hmm. uh, community, I uh, have been looking at devotion practices again. I did them 15 years ago uh, when I was younger and my practice was younger. And I must tell you, I, I really didn't I really didn't get it. And it was all very much in my head. Um, I could understand it, but it didn't. It was not at all embodied or yes. integrated. And maybe it's because I'm I'm looking at sixty this year, but somehow it's quite a bit different. But I'm curious uh, from your perspective, as you know, really one of the uh, the first uh, people to come over and bring these practices to the West. How do you feel devotion practices work in the West in an appropriate way that doesn't encourage? you know, kooky or lack of boundary settings? Yes, well, you, that's a multi-pronged um, question and issue. One is about devotion and faith and whether we have it or not and how to cultivate it or if it's necessary and what's healthy and useful and what's extra like slavish or 
following yeah. cult gurus who take you over or yeah. other problems that can occur of being you know gullible or or uh, vulnerable and so on and another question of interest and i just did a podcast with sally armstrong a uh, sally armstrong swami swami durgananda What's it? Sally Kempton. My senior moment. Sally Kempton, ah. who wrote the Shakti books and other things, and is a real Swami in the Tantric Hindu tradition yeah. and yoga teacher. About this, about bhakti and jnana, the two paths of uh-huh. devotion as a way to the ultimate, what they call God, uh, uh-huh. and jnana, uh, knowledge or rational you know, or uh-huh. philosophy and practice. Uh, so, you know, like the heart and the mind, bhakti and jnana, devotion and okay. wisdom, paths that are sort of parallel and meet in the horizon of oneness, or really, they're really one inside another, more like the yin-yang. So I think different people have different personalities, like you mentioned you were a lawyer and you're trained in the West, so you maybe you didn't have a guru that you really followed or a Catholic or, you know, religious upbringing that you got a lot out of the devotional I did have chanting. a very religious... Yeah, yeah, I did have a very, I'm sorry, I got something funny happening to my screen, so if you see me looking at it, I don't want this to mess up our, okay. Um, The technology, it's got me spooked a little bit. Okay, so I did have a religious upbringing. Um, My father was Catholic, my mother was Presbyterian, my father's, uh, I think it's fair to say that my father's family was far more religious and certainly in a structured religion than my mother's family, Um, and he had to give up his Catholicism in order to marry my mother at that time, Um, yet he, he was very committed to our going to Sunday school in the Presbyterian Church. And we lived, when I was very young, not many blocks, maybe five or six blocks away from the Presbyterian Church. So he would walk us to church, or walk me to church, because I was the younger one, If my, I don't remember if my brother and sister were always with us, mm-hmm. and um, give me some money, like a nickel, a dime, as I got older it was a quarter, <laughs> to put in the, in the plate, you know. And um, but he didn't go into the church because mm. it wasn't his church. His church. So at a very young age, and then I was in the church choir the whole thing all through high school. Um, and at a very young age, and my grandparents on his side never really quite um, accepted my uh, my mother's religion. They got used to it, I guess. Um, but my it took a while. So from a very young age, I saw how these different religious beliefs can uh, get in the way as yes, opposed to going right. together. So right. well, I think... Well, that's the question, really, is how much and what your spiritual personality is. Like, some people love church-going and community. Some love hymns or chants in foreign languages, whether it be Latin or Tibetan or Sanskrit or Japanese, whatever yeah. it is. And some want it in English or no chanting, like secular mindfulness. Uh, yeah. So I think this about different spiritual personalities. Some are very physical and, and want yeah. you know yoga and tai chi and yeah. bowing and other um, physical things, and some more philosophical. So uh-huh. so I think that that's one thing. So devotion and faith path isn't for everybody, but it's a great path. It's a great accelerant. It, it's a very you know moving from the head to the heart is a great experience for people like us yeah. who were 
let's say, northeast coast motor minds and motor mouths with a lot of mental education and maybe not entirely emotional intelligencers or spiritual heart people. So um, I had met gurus when I was 20, in my 20s in, in India, and that changed my life. So that was my path. So I so got devoted to, to them. To bring it back into the more secular world, because um, I, I know a lot of your audience is, is secular, how does, what does that look like if you're trying to take devotion or faith, which are really not um, often, as far as I know, I, I don't think of them as being religious, as being secular uh, ideas or practices as much. How would you consider bringing devotion and faith into a secular context keeping in mind, especially when working with kids, uh, the importance of helping them develop self-esteem and strong boundaries. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm sure you've met kids, and I certainly have, and I've worked with a bunch, you know, these nice kids who will just want to be nice. They just want to be helpful. And they get these ideas that we teach them of be nice, be kind, be generous, uh, as meaning put aside your own wants and needs and and just if somebody wants something give it to them the right thing to do is give it away as opposed to having some healthy boundary relationship and because nice kids are very often bullies targets so how does that work i mean obviously with young kids they're not develop, developmentally ready for this kind of devotional or faith practice but what that 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 thing i'm talking about that we see with kids being like so nice that they get um, they get uh, like uh, taken advantage of or or you know bowled over you know you see it in adults too so those people I think the devotion de- devotion and faith how do you teach that while at the same time building up these healthy interpersonal boundaries am I making any sense yes and my okay. first answer is I don't know. And I hope people like you that really work on the ground with kids a lot and have raised kids know about boundaries. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't stress devotion and faith that much when I teach Westerners, of uh-huh. course, unless they come to me with that and they have other lamas or gurus and they're talking like that or they still have theistic, like let's say Judeo or Christian or other beliefs, then they're more into that. Because devotion and faith is part of all of us, like the Western scientist has devotion to truth and faith in the scientific methods. So that's almost like a religion. Yeah. And so it's part of us. So I don't know. I think it's how we cultivate a middle way of not too much and not too little. So we don't just have nice girls or nice boys who are people pleaser, who are codependent and have weak boundaries and, you know, end up getting taken advantage of. But I'll leave that to you. I'd like to hear more from you and the other people about that. Um, I use devotion and faith and chanting, and I'm from Tibetan tradition, so I like that. And my guru, Nimkareli Baba, you know, taught us to sing and to chant, so he opened my heart. Otherwise, I think I would have been a fairly dried-out Buddhist scholar and translator type of meditating psychology type of guy. So it's made me feel a lot warmer and empathic and connected with people and love people and love animals and love the environment and connect with nature and things that I didn't have so much growing up being a three-sport jock yeah. in Long Island. 
yeah. and headed for, you know, being pushed to go to medical or law school, et cetera. Yeah, do you think that those devotional practices uh, make you make one, as a teacher, not necessarily from your own experience, make one more, because you've broken open, make one more open or prone toward crying? They can, if, yeah. if, if it suits you. Just like some people cry when they see beautiful things or hear music or, or, or sad things, and others don't. Yeah. Or some get motivated to do something similar, but uh, they don't cry. Yeah. Or if they see a sad thing, they get motivated to do something about it to help or to yeah. take on that problem in a bigger sense. So yeah. I think it really depends on oneself. And yeah. that's part I'm asking of... You yeah. I'm asking you this because I was in... I, I told you... Well, you know I'm doing this work with um, Tergar, and there's certain practices that are called nindra practices and i was doing a set of them and it was around the time that the baby panda was born in dc do you remember that i do and i went through a period and then remember two baby pandas were born and they looked like little i remember sticks. they had two names like click and clack or something <laughs> like the that. radio guys and, that's right <laughs> in Boston. and one of them passed away one of them uh, lived uh-huh. for, I mean, just after one, one of them lived for three or four days, and the other one now is great. You see pictures of them. I, well, I follow. You have to tell us their names, because I don't remember. I don't Do you remember, remember either. They I don't remember. I'm small sorry. names, like yeah. Bambi or Bam and Bim. I think it's Bay right? it, it, You're right, it starts yeah. with a B. But anyway, make a long story shorter, <laughs> I was in the process. I'd even, it was the summertime, I think, so I was... I had time off, and all pretty much all I was doing was this set of practices. Um, and But I was going around my day, and there were about three or four days that the baby pandas had just been born, and it wasn't clear whether or not the second one would make it, who unfortunately didn't make it, which apparently is very common with baby pandas. Um, and all I did, whether I was in the grocery store, whether I was behind the wheel of the car, I just kept bursting oh. into tears over the baby panda. And it was just, or I would look at my Instagram account and I would see the baby panda and it was just, <laughs> I would all, everybody, my whole family was like laughing because it wasn't like a sobbing awful, but it was just like this spontaneous bursting of tears over the baby panda, which I, I chalk up to the devotional practices but when you were asking about what we do with kids for boundaries we do something very similar to what my adult teachers have taught me um although we language it differently which is uh it's how we teach discernment to kids in an age-appropriate way in the same activity the same practice works regardless of whether you're working with a four-year-old whether you're working with a 40-year-old in the in the in the world of children and families, uh, we ask, "Is what you're about to do, um, even if you decide I'm going to give this toy to this other person, is what you're about to do helpful? And is it not just helpful in general? Because with kids, we have to really break it down to scaffold. And I'm learning that's not such a bad idea with adults either. Is it helpful to you? Is it helpful to me?" Is it helpful to the other person? And is it helpful to the community? And very often, the answer to those questions are going to conflict. Well, yes, it's helpful to me, but no, it's not helpful. And so then the fourth question when that happens, as kids get a little bit older, is what matters most? And that activity that we call, or it's one of our mindful games, we call is it helpful, is a way to really Mm -hmm. think it through And one of the conversations that's really helpful when you're talking about bullying uh, with kids is, is it helpful to the other person? So let's just use 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, sorry. I'm back. Are you there? I'm getting yes. these. Okay. I get these things. Uh, I'm not, I'm not losing you. Screen not losing about you. it signing itself out, but I, oh. I think I just did it. But one of the things we really see with kids when you're talking about bullying that is a very fantastic, um, very, I'm sorry about this. This is just, uh, there we go. I'm getting all these things. Uh, one of the things for kids that is just fantastic is the conversation about is this helpful to the other person? Because if you're dealing with a bully, very frequently they're going to ask you for your red truck. And you can think, okay, I'll give them the red truck because they want it. But if you ask kids a little bit older than red truck age, is it really helpful to give the bully what they want? It's such a great opening for all sorts of conversations about, you know, that may not be so helpful to give somebody what they want all the time. Maybe they have to learn. And so anyway, that's how we teach that to kids. But I found that before teach, before in my earlier days of teaching kids, when I didn't go through that inquiry with them, I was really worried that practices that are so common now in popular um, websites and all, like gratitude practices, like generosity practices, appreciation, mm -hmm. was really reinforcing some habits in kids who had low self-esteem to just not stand up for themselves and just to feel that they, in order to be a nice kid, they had to just do whatever anybody else wanted them to do. Yes, um, that's a wonderful mantra that you mentioned, so I want to highlight it. Uh -huh. is, is it helpful as a question, as a touchstone uh -huh. to ask before you do anything? This could apply to adults, too. I remember the Dalai Lama, um, you know, you have your feet in the ground and you sit on the floor with the kids, so I go around with the Dalai Lama sometimes. I mean, not always, but he was at the White House and with President Clinton in the 90s in the back room meeting, and uh, he said to the president, you're the most powerful man in the world. Everything you do should be motivated by compassion and wish to help. Mm. And I thought, that's wow, beautiful. that's that's kind of audacious. He's like telling the president where it's at. But it was taken very well, and it was so deep into the point and appropriate. So I think yeah. the Clinton Foundation, all of us are thinking about this in our, you know, major elder years about how to care for the world. And even with the young ones, whenever I see the young ones, and it really means of any age, you know, spiritual as well as physical young ones. But I just want to lift them all up in my maroon llama shawl or something into the light and together and in harmony uh, rather than fracturing and bring people yeah. together and make links and... There's just such a, a need, and 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 uh, in our fracturing and and cacophonous, not to mention violent world. I mean, look what's going on this, you know, now in the election year. I don't really want to go into that exactly, but I did want to just follow up on what you were saying about you know, is it helpful as a touchstone, as a mantra, as a, as a keyword, as a reminder for the kids. Yeah. Um, I have a retreat well, center. Yeah. I have a the retreat. Word helpful. Yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to highlight the word helpful because what's great about the word helpful, we, st we landed on the word helpful first, working with kids, because it's a word that is in the vocabulary of kids as young as mm -hmm. four. So, you know, obviously, is it helpful is, is really a play on is it skillful um, as far as the skillful means and all. But um, then the more I started working with is it helpful 
besides being developmentally appropriate for the real young ones, I realized what's great about the word helpful is that it really does have a heart quality to it. Skillful has much more of a head quality to it. Mm -hmm. Helpful, for me anyway, has more of a embodied quality to it. And it also, it's there really is no charge to it in any of the places that I brought it in, where some other words, there's a sense of kind of judgment around it. Uh, but helpfulness feels less charged. So I think it's so interesting, and we're given, you and I and others in our position are given such an amazing opportunity now to go deeper into our own practice simply by looking at individual words or individual practices or things that are just so commonplace for those who are trained in the classical Buddhist tradition and question them not with respect to their validity, but with respect to whether or not this is really helpful. the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are they helpful? And if Are they helpful here now to us, not in general to everybody or in ancient times in the Himalayas? Exactly. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like your helpful, and I think it's really appropriate for kids, too. You know, we could use words like altruistic or other things, but those are big words and generosity. But helpful is wonderful. And um, also, it's better than skillful, I think, because skillful suggests also effectiveness. Like, helpful yeah. is about altruism and, and motivation to help and cooperate. It's a cooperative word. Skillful could mean getting your own way or gathering all the marbles or just effectively yeah. conquering the whole world like a Napoleon or something. So, but I don't know if that's helpful, useful, not to mention cooperative or altruistic or good for the greater good for the greatest number. Yeah. So I love your helpful mantra, and I will definitely pass that on. So thank you. Um, that's worth the price of admission right there for kids of all ages. Yeah. Well, I, I hadn't thought of that about skillful being like a, uh, but you're absolutely right. It's about getting something done in a way. Yeah. 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 So I have a, uh, just as a funny, just because we're talking here and what yeah. goes on on the Awakening Now podcast uh, stays here between us. <laughs> I have retreats in outside Austin. So in, in Texas, they like to use, a lot, a lot of people, not all, use their touchstone, what would Jesus do? But in yeah. Texas, they especially say, what would Willie do? <laughs> Meaning Willie Nelson. So that puts another whole spin on it. It's a funny. Yeah, I like that. I like that. But I think helpful is is a more higher education kind of, even for four-year-olds, is something very yeah. important that we can all learn about intention and motivation since so much depends on that. Yeah, so yeah. Much. And also the one thing I've learned with kids that has, has really spilled over into every aspect of my life is you learn when you're working with kids, although I was not trained as a teacher, as you know, I was trained as a lawyer, I have had the unbelievable good fortune of basically being a student teacher in some amazing classroom teachers' classes because I've been brought into schools for so long. And then I'm also in conversation with the directors of these schools. So I believe me, I get lots of very specific feedback on mm -hmm. my teaching style. And so I learned early on the importance of unpacking these things for kids one piece at a time. And once I learned that, like, is it helpful to me? Is it helpful to someone else? Is it helpful to the world? What matters most? I thought, geez, we should be doing this for all ages. The real 
scaffolding of the issues, really breaking it down, really teasing apart. Because so many questions come up under the, is it me? Is it helpful to me? The question right. you get from parents is, oh, doesn't that promote this egoism, this narcissism that people are saying all these millennials have, which I don't agree with at all. I, I live with millennials, and that has not been my experience. But no, of course, in this context, it is not about putting prioritizing your own helpfulness first. It's about self-awareness, and it's impossible to be aware without that. So, so this scaffolding, this learning uh, that we do with children and how we present things to children is so helpful in arguments with our, with our spouses, with our partners, in conversations with our kids, in conversations with our friends, and absolutely everything we do beyond teaching of kids or adults. Well, it's obviously, you know, we're in a culture that began or grew up on individualism, and that's fine, but we're coming back to the more global understanding of interconnectedness and interdependence and the need for cooperation and the benefits of cooperation and altruism, not just competition and, and so on. So I think it's very important to bring those values forth however we can and find practices or ways of life because practices are exercises in life, not just sitting quietly and meditating, but actually living it in life, mindful life, unselfish life, the, the being generous with yourself and others or self-awareness, other awareness. So I think that's very important for us today. Um, I'm impressed that you, I've been talking, I'll tell you a funny, your new book, which I just read the manuscript of and was happy that you sent to me, so I can give you an endorsement. I'm very high Thank on your Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Called Mindful Gameness Games. Uh-huh. Um, I've been talking for decades about meditation games, and everybody thinks I'm joking. <laughs> like well, getting the kids to walk on a straight line on the tennis court or on the edge of the rug yeah. or on the sand one foot after another. It's a classical like walking meditation or concentration exercise. Yeah. And if you really get good at it, you can walk backwards. Well, yeah. As you teach, keeping a beach ball up in the air with three or four kids together. So these yeah. are examples of mindfulness games. And I think bring the lightness and joy of this to, you know, even the word games yeah. is a wonderful contribution. So thank yeah. you. And I hope all of our listeners are thinking about this too and uh, not being overly simplistic or square about what is meditation, what is prayer, what is yoga? What is spiritual? What is enlightening? What is wisdom? What is love? And really yeah. exploring it, and if I dare say exploiting it, like digging deep and bringing it out and seeing what it is for yeah. themselves and together. It's really a, a time for this. Yeah, that's for sure. It is time for this. And, and I'm very encouraged by all that is happening around us. It feels that there is just something far greater than any individual person, certainly, but even any individual tradition that is just bringing this all to the fore in so much of the world, um, and, and possibly in reaction to so much of the the hate that is mm-hmm. out there right now. And, yes. um, and the hate in the name of religion or in the name of uh, I don't a history or made up history. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very, it's very wor- worrisome. I'm quite concerned about it. Religion, religio means to bring together or unite, and people killing for God and hate, yeah. hate crimes, 
terrorism yeah. and so on. It's, it's a very disturbing um, development. Of course, we've been having violence and wars and all kind, you know, terrorist bombings in many countries for, for centuries. But these days, it's all in our face with the modern media and transportation yeah. systems and so on. And I'm really feeling we have to disarm our hearts, not just nuclear disarmament, but disarm our hearts and root out the fear and anger and yeah. well, certainly se the selfishness at the, at the root. Yeah, I mean, certainly the terrorism and the hate is is uh, terrifying and and cause for a lot of worry. And right now, just quite immediately in the immediate uh, time frame right now of August 12, 2016, I'm quite worried about the react the reaction to this fear. Yes. And rather than reacting with a broader understanding. Uh, you know, people really taking uh, advantage of the fear and responding with a much more narrower and much, you know, a hate-based yes. reaction. And and I'm finding, I mean, I'm finding that to be very, very scary right now. Um, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing. I guess we just and that's where our faith and devotion comes in, right? Or at least the faith. We have to have faith that this is the process that will bring us to a point of greater understanding uh, and bring a more a wider group of people to a point of greater understanding. Well, it is a cause for alarm and people fear mongering in order to push their own agenda, whether it's chauvinistic yeah. for our own country or jingoistic to make war for the profit from the industri military industrial complex or just to get elected. Yeah. By building walls and things, which or just this to is get not famous, the age of walls. Just to get more yeah. attention, just to get it's famous. A great concern. You know, great concern, and and hopefully we can turn that into an opportunity to act, to get people, you know, uh, up and acting, get everybody up and out and not complacent. And also, wow, I mean, you know, it, it is fascinating when you think of how much we've been reading over the last year or two about our egocentric, ego-driven, driven, self-involved, narcissistic culture, um, so much so that there, it would be understandable that people, especially a lot of the um, teens and, you know, younger people that I work with, get kind of like, oh, please, you know, enough on that. When you see <laughs> what, when you see what that looks like kind of embodied in a one or more public figure um, at its greatest extreme, you know, it's hard yes. to be complacent. It's hard to it be is. It is. Well, um, you know, I, I teach and talk about various things, as you know, but I always say Buddha's greatest teaching is the middle way, the way of moderation and balance and appropriateness. So m moderation has to be taken in moderation, too, but... <laughs> um, extreme views and extreme beliefs are really a big problem in our world today. So I think you mentioned this before about how to have nice children who aren't unboundaried or taken advantage of and other things. I think this middle way approach of finding balance and harmony and not all or nothing and not shouting always and never, whether it's in relationships or in other ways, you know, it's just not helpful. And finding a more balanced, if not nuanced, approach, not a monochromatic, one-size-fits-all, 
and even in spiritual practice, one practice fits all kind of oversimplistic mentality. Yeah. Um, there's different courses for different horses, and that's why we have the different kinds of practices and paths and even religions, or dare I say, that's why we have different political parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to go back to a statement you made because it, it reminds me of something that I was recently um, a little bit challenged on uh, be- when you said something like, you can go overboard with moderation, or what, mm-hmm. what was that you said? Moderation also has to be in moderation. Yes, moderation I mean, has to be in the moderation. Pa- life is not a razor's edge down the middle of the highway. There's a lot of lanes. We just yeah. try to stay out of the ditches on both yeah. sides of the road. Ditches like on one side nihilism, nothing yeah. matters. On the other side, materialism, only what real or solid that we can, you know, way counts. Yes. So there's plenty of room. It's not just a, a razor's edge. And everybody doesn't have to be like cream cheese or homogenized. So yes. moderation, also in moderation. Maybe on Saturday yeah. night or New Year's Eve, less moderation. And the rest of the week, yeah. you know, some reasonable moderation, not to be boring about it. But yeah. That's why yeah, I was no, thinking. That's a, that's a really important point. I was in, you know, one of the things I love about teaching is that people will challenge us mm-hmm. on things that we say and one of the things that is a theme that I've been using with kids and families for all these years is the ABCs attention the ABCs of mindfulness of meditation mm-hmm. of the blank of learning and the ABCs are attention balance and compassion so I'm in conversation with someone in a professional capacity and the person says to me what's so good about balance Get balance. I don't like balance I think balance is overrated uh-huh. what's such a big deal about balance which I love that I mean it was like such a fantastic yeah. yes maybe balance. we need to rethink it yes let's well, think about it anyway I'm yes. not saying it's wrong but yes. go a little deeper into it yes well you know it's it's a very useful teaching tool ABC's attention balancing compassion but um I but yes I mean I was so great i was so supportive of that response yes balance but i would go so far to think of it deeper as saying balance includes the capacity to be able to take yourself out of balance but to threshold right so you don't want to go Mm -hmm. over the threshold you know i've been doing this i don't know if i had a chance to actually talk to you off camera or off mic about this but i'm in this um training program peter levine's somatic experiencing no, you didn't program. tell me susan yeah it's fantastic and i'm just finishing the first year or i just finished the first year and that idea about taking yourself to threshold which is out of your comfort level you know it's a growth area but recognizing threshold which is about as much as you can take right and so i guess if we will look at balance more deeply balance can be getting yourself outside of your comfort level to your edge but learning not to slip over the threshold right into mm-hmm. into a reactive into a rigid into an overwhelmed state or the other way into an underwhelmed you know yes under- like happy and sad is the graph of emotional life i mean one of the you know kinds of emotional pairs yeah. but yeah. happy doesn't mean elated which is get more extreme yeah. And manic, which is pathological, and yeah. sad doesn't have to be despair, which is more extreme, or depressed, yeah. which becomes you know yeah. a, a mental health problem, illness. So yeah. the balance, but it doesn't mean we can't have peak experiences or great you know cosmic love or and, other and things. And in fact, I, we should, and I wish that for everyone. Yeah, 
Yeah, so I think that's 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 the that's what I have to do a better job of clarifying is that you can still be in balance at a peak experience, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just the wrong well, word for it. Yeah, we just these are just uh, labels now. But yeah. um, since you mentioned the ABCs of mindfulness and mindfulness is sweeping the nation and some people think it's just sitting and watching your breath or counting your breath or for being more effective and lose the wisdom the enlightenment, the insight, the empathic and compassion, the selfless, unselfish a- aspects of it. You mentioned the ABCs of compassion, attention, balance, the ABCs of mindfulness, excuse me, the Att- attention, <laughs> balance, and compassion. compassion In your yeah. new book, you, you uh, raised the ante to six, and you added a few interesting <laughs> ones. Could you uh, mention those? Yeah, I can't remember me, what they were, but I was interested in your your yeah. your your flowering. More petals were coming out of this mindfulness. Yeah, tool. well, well, let me tell you what happened. How that happened. I was when I wrote the first book, um, which was hmm, I guess it came out six years ago. Uh, my experience had been almost entirely on the ground with kids and families, and I loved it. When that book came out, I was in the very fortunate position that I hadn't really planned for uh, being asked to really go around and start training adults to work with kids and families, but mostly with kids. Um, So I I spent a few years really on the road going from school to school to place to place. And I was surprised about what I had seen. I think those of us... Uh, in the mindfulness and the secular mindfulness and meditation movement uh, with kids and with adults have done a very good job of getting things out on the internet that offer simple activities uh, that somebody can just do um, with their child or with themselves. What had happened in what I was seeing repeatedly is that people were doing those things with kids having nice anecdotal results that they could say, oh, yeah, they they calmed themselves. But when I said something like, when you ring that bell, uh, what's your teaching objective? What are you trying to do? Well, nobody knew. When, you know, they, they just, well, I'm trying, we're just breathing, but when right. we do just breathe, but everybody why? comes. Yeah. yeah, but why? What you, and in any other teaching, uh, you know, as you know, you need you set out your objective, and then you have a whole bunch of different uh lessons or tools to use to kind of further that objective that piece was missing so we were getting a lot of people who were without remember because in the secular world there's often not a lot a lot to sometimes any uh classical training behind it and at first i was quite um judgmental about that but i've grown to understand that as part of this but then also we were we are all now faced with a um with a challenge and an obligation in my mind then to make what we're offering understandable from a perspective of teaching objectives. So it, it was clear to me that people didn't know either the life skills or the capacities that kids were, were trying to help kids and adults develop or the universal themes. So that's what this, this, the, what this latest book is the manuals that were put together over those four years teaching largely people without much or sometimes any meditation experience how to do simple games with kids, understanding what are the themes that we're also teaching. Because absent these themes, we're just teaching 
mindfulness in this you know as a in the say as a self-improvement tool with the same left brain linear uh accomplishment mentality that we teach everything else and of course that's uh that's not what the whole that's not the whole enchilada so the skills you're talking about that we teach in addition to the life skills, the skill, I'm sorry, that we teach in addition to the universal themes, the skills are quieting, which is first, we really can't focus until our nervous system quiets, quieting skills that help us focus, and then when we are able to focus, we can see, which is the third, <laughs> see more clearly, and once we see more clearly, then we can reframe in a way that's consistent with these universal things we've been talking about. And we always reframe toward caring and connecting. So that's our six. And we put focusing, we, we, uh, we do that in a circle of life skills. Focusing is at the center with five of them around them because focusing is uh, necessary for all of the others. It's necessary for quieting, for seeing, for reframing, caring, and connecting. So these are all very familiar to people who have a Buddhist uh, background as far as uh, our, our way of teaching. And they're also very familiar to people who have no uh, classical training background but are well-trained in um, social and emotional learning. So, yes. so that's how that worked. And then, of course, the sequence that we train them is follows the classical sequence, which is basically attention first. We do that through the quieting and the focusing activity. And then emotional balance, which we do through seeing and reframing. And then caring and connecting, which is compassion. So it still follows the classical path, which is something that I've been really interested in and prioritized in my work uh, in, a, in a way that can be secularized. Wonderful. Thank you. What does seeing me refer to, really? Well, Cle you know, clear see seeing, seeing it as it is. What? Uh, you know, direct perception. What? Well, just as far a little inside baseball talk. What was tricky about this in writing the book is I kept playing around with the sequencing because each one of these things can mean something else mm -hmm. depending on the context. And I also used to have a couple more. I had choosing in there, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, as another life skill that we uh, needed, and then choosing could fit in a couple of places. In this particular uh, model, the one that um, I thought was the most useful to the audience in which I work, seeing is just simply being able to see clearly uh, without emotional reactivity, or if you do have emotional reactivity, to be able to see that too. It's just being able to see what the situation is, uh, even if that situation includes reactivity. And then reframing here is reframing based on uh, these universal themes and this understanding that, you know, there's two sides to every story. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of my favorite um, quotes from His Holiness the Dalai Lama is that, you know, no, it's, and I'm going to bastardize it here, I apologize in advance, but it's from Beyond Religion, and it's, no matter how much work we do, no matter what we do to look at all the countless causes and connect conditions mm -hmm. that make up this field of whatever's happening in this moment, we can never know it all. We just can never know it all. And that shouldn't make us feel uh, upset or shouldn't disillusion us. It should just instill proper humility. And yes, humility, right, yeah. and not being a know-it-all and so dogmatic, which yeah. obviously brings its problems. Well, that's a wonderful 
presentation of those qualities. So thank you. Of course, the most important one you forgot, which is humor, but maybe that should be in the petals of my flower. <laughs> well, you are you do humor so Light, well. Lightening up while enlightening up, yes. et cetera, and not taking ourselves yes. so darn seriously. Yeah, no, you're right. It would be I, it would be nice to have that in that model. I mean, Hard I, to teach that, but it is. It's in the title, Mindfulness it, Games. Yes, Games. it is. Yes, it, it's hard to teach other than through embodiment, I think. I mean, it's, yes. it's similar to say, have a sense of humor is similar to saying, telling somebody to relax, I right? Know. Right, or explaining thing. a joke, you, you lose the point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been wonderful seeing you and being together. Um, I have to, we have to get together more on the East and West Coast or even Skype like this and talk about those other things. The teacher you're studying with, Minja Rinpoche, who's wonderful, he wrote The Joy of Living and he was my teacher in his last lifetime, according to Tibetan Buddhism. I didn't know that. And I'm very, you must feel very close to him. I do. I just spent a day with him in upstate New York at yeah. the Nyingma Center, close. Yeah. And um, it's amazing. You know, him he's and a his great brother. Lama. They're yeah. all great he, lamas, all those he, brothers. Yeah, I, I, I have only met two of them, but uh, Selkni Rinpoche and Minker Rinpoche's, I think they complement each other so beautifully. Yes. I'm not that close with them uh, as far as proximity or anything, but I certainly am close uh, as far as with respect to practice. They're, they've been an amazing, amazing resource. So you're an amazing resource, and these Dharma practices beyond Buddhism or any ism, the spiritual awakening is an amazing resource. So as I always say to people, help yourself. And is this helpful is a great mantra we're all going to remember, Susan, so thank you. But help yourself, as Buddha said, help yourself to it and help yourself and each other together. So there's a treasure trove here for us if we want it to use it. So as I say, so now what are you going to do? friends what are you going to do is that a real question yes no not for for discussing that but yeah it's a rhetorical question for each of us to think now what are you going to do in this vein if you feel it's you know moved to join us in the heart in this movement this great movement of awakening and loving and together yeah, especially in this political environment. Yes. This, it's a, what are you going to do is, yeah. I think, a question all of us uh, right. need to need to spend some time reflecting on. Yes, and doing nothing or not voting is also a karmic action, and it has its repercussions. So think about it carefully, yeah. friends. Yeah. Who may not vote, who are fed up with the political process. It's the best we got so far. I've lived around the world, so yeah. it's the best we got so far, but let's keep working to make it better. Thank you and namaste. Love. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest 
and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.